Well, here we are, Easter Sunday. The Lord has risen. He has risen indeed. It's a celebration today. And at the same time, it's hard. Because here we are, two Easter Sundays, two Easter seasons in a row, on Easter Sunday, not able to gather in person with one another. Not able to hug one another or to gather over a potluck. Not able to go to our families and have big Easter dinners. Not able to do the things that we're so used to doing. But, and there's always a but, there is still hope. Because of Jesus, there is always hope. Though we be behind our closed doors again, we might be by ourselves. Perhaps we're in our living rooms or in our kitchens or in our dining tables. Perhaps we're, we're meeting all by ourselves right now as we worship. The church is still meeting. All across the world, the church is still alive. Today, millions and millions of Christians all over the world, we are gathered together. Whether we're gathered alone in our living rooms or whether we are gathered in small groups in house churches or whether we are gathered in small numbers in physical churches, we are gathered all over the world today, all of us celebrating that Jesus is alive. Today we wrap up a seven-week sermon series. We were looking at the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross, the seven last words. Today on Easter... On Easter Sunday, we talk about the very last words that Jesus said on the cross. And it's interesting because if you look at the words that we talked about last week, which the sermon is available online, if you look at John 19, I believe it's 23, that we preached on last week, you'll notice that those are the last words John records. Those are the last words that John says Jesus spoke. And it's actually only Luke that includes the words we're going to talk about today. Only the gospel writer Luke includes what we have right here. Only he says these words. But historians, biblical scholars, they will agree that these are in fact the last words of Jesus on the cross. This is the final saying from the cross. And so I'm going to read it for you today. And it comes from Luke 23, 46. And I'll be reading from the uh, NIV. So it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he takes his very last breath. Now, I'll be honest, it does seem a little bit odd to talk about the cross on Easter Sunday. To talk about Jesus dying on Easter Sunday. Because most Easter Sunday messages are all about Jesus coming out of the tomb. And truthfully, that is what happened today. 2,000 and something years ago, Jesus walked out of that tomb. He was reunited with the apostles. He was reunited with the Marys. He was reunited with all the other followers. But today I want to talk about those words on the cross. Where Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is his last saying. And these are called the words of reunion. The words of reunion. Now today I want to look at five points as we talk about this. And I know that typically I would make two or three maybe points on a sermon. But I'm going to go with five today. Even though it's about double the amount that I usually talk about. But it's Easter Sunday so I get double the time I think for preaching. Right? And no one's here to stop me. So I could go for hours if I wanted to. But I'm only using five points. But they'll all be rather quick points. So five points I want to say on Jesus' last words on the cross here. So here we go to the first point. The first point is that Jesus knew it was his time to go. Jesus knew it was his time to die. So I was watching a movie this week, and, and this point come up in the movie, actually. And now, the movie is Hercules, and so if you haven't seen it yet, the clip that I'm about to show you does contain spoilers. But if you haven't seen this movie, it, it's sort of your fault. The movie came out in 2014, so you've had seven years to watch it, and if you haven't seen it yet, I don't think you're going to be watching it. So it does contain spoilers for the movie, so if you wanted to go watch it, Maybe don't watch this clip. But anyways, the two guys that you will see in this clip, we have Dwayne Rock Johnson, 
Uh, and he plays Hercules. In this movie, he plays Hercules. Great choice because he's a very buff guy. Uh, he plays Hercules. Weirdly, he never has a shirt on throughout the entire movie. The only time he's covered up is when he's wearing a, a, a chest plate. Uh, and the other person that you will see is Amphiaris, which is a, a seer, a seer of the time. Now, basically, a seer is, see, is someone who, who sees uh, what the gods at the time, this would be the, the, the Greek gods, what the gods would tell him. So they would give him a message. They would let him see the future, and he would be able to see that. Now, the whole movie, people are astounded by this Amphiaris because they know that he says he has seen how he will die. He just doesn't know when. He has seen how he will die, but he doesn't know when yet. But he knows that it's not the current battle that they're in. Every time they get to a battle, he goes, it's, it's not this one. And so he goes into these battles with this utmost confidence because he knows this is not his time to die. He doesn't know exactly when, but he knows that this time, that time they're in that battle, it's not going to be that time. And so we'll watch that clip right now. When will you die? Within a week, in a place that looks an awful lot like hell. As always, the gods are generous with hints, but cheap on specifics. <laughs> oh, cheer up, Hercules. I've lived not always well, but long enough. I'm ready for what's next. Maybe not. <laughs> Excuse me, that was my moment, my fate. You're welcome. Now, this is just a movie, of course, but the premise is a good one. See, Amphiaris knew he was going to die, and so because he knew he when he was or sorry how he was going to die, and he would know on occasion that it's not now. He doesn't know exactly when, but it's not now at that point. Because he knew that, he was prepared for it. He was ready for it. He was unafraid of it, and he was unafraid of what he had to do because he knew that it wasn't that time yet. Now back to Jesus. Jesus knew when he was going to die. He talks about it a lot, actually. It's kind of funny if you read through, especially the Gospel of Mark, how often he talks about it. If you look at Mark, uh, it, you'll see the book is split into kind of thirds. And basically that first or that, that last third is pretty well Jesus talking about how and when he's going to die. It's pretty much the, the last third of the book is what he's talking about there. And it's ironic that the disciples never seem to get it. He talks about it all the time. And then when he dies, they're like, what? We never saw this coming. How are we supposed to know, right? In fact, he told his disciples straight to the point a number of times that he was going to die and even how he was going to die. One time we have it in Matthew 15, 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and he must be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, 22 says, and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. See, he talks about it a lot. He predicts his death. He tells them when and how. He says, this is what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. Now, why is that important? 
was important because it reminds us that Jesus was prepared for this. Jesus knew that this was coming. This means, this means Jesus knew this was part of God's plan. This wasn't, this wasn't plan B. This wasn't plan C. Jesus dying and coming back was not an afterthought. This was God's plan from the very beginning. This was plan A from the very beginning. So Jesus knew he was going to die because he knew it was part of God's plan. And because he knew it was part of God's plan, he knew that this would never be stopped or changed or, or thrown out and just restarted. He knew that this was the plan and this was what was going to happen. And there was confidence and trust that he said, well, it's, it's God's plan. This is what's going to happen. So he knew he was going to die and so he was prepared for it. And the second thing that we see here is that he wasn't afraid of death. And this has to do with him knowing that he was going to die. Uh, it helps him to not be afraid. As we saw in the movie clip, Amphiaris was not afraid when he was going to die. He actually even welcomed it because he knew it was going to come. He had this sense of confidence. We see here that Jesus is not afraid to die. There are a lot of things in life that we as humans fear. And probably the greatest of all of them is death. And most of our other fears are really fears of other things that might lead to death. I mean, look at the fear of heights. A lot of people are afraid of heights. And there's nothing inherently scary about heights, but the fact that gravity mixed with heights causes death, right? It's not that a height itself is scary, but it's, it's the fact that you are way up there and gravity brings you down here, and that could lead to death. Another one is spiders. We're afraid of spiders because we think, well, if this spider bites me, it could kill me. Who knows if it's poisonous, whatever. No one is afraid of spiders because they're too cuddly. No one looks at a spider and goes, ooh, I'm scared, he's way too snuggly for me, right? We're just afraid of spiders and we think, well, great, it could maybe kill me, I don't know. We're afraid of death because we aren't sure what comes next. It means leaving the world that we know for one that we don't know really anything about. Death is the final enemy. But, and here again is another great but, but not for those who trust and know Jesus. Because Jesus steps in and he says, fear not, I have conquered death. He died. Yes, we know that. But today is Easter Sunday and today we celebrate the fact that he lives. Today we celebrate the fact that he is not dead. He is alive. He died and he came back. He came back after defeating death. No one else has ever done that. Other people have been raised by Jesus from the dead, but no one else died and brought themselves back from death. He defeated death through his own power. Hebrews 2, 14, 15 says it best. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And he might free those, oh, those who all uh, their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. Did you catch that last part? It says he broke the power of death and then he freed those who are enslaved by their fear of death. We don't have to fear death any longer because Jesus defeated death. We will still die a mortal death. Yes, I'm not saying that we're going to live in this human mortal body forever. We will still die a mortal death, absolutely. But for Christians, we no longer have to fear it as an entrance into the unknown. Because for the Christian or for those who know Jesus, it is the entrance into the presence of God. It is not the entrance into the unknown. It is the entrance into the very presence of God. Jesus didn't fear death, and you don't have to fear death either if you know Jesus. <laughs> now on to the third point. See, I told you these would go quick. The third point is that Jesus died without anger or bitterness. Over the last seven weeks, we have looked at these last final sayings. And in any of those sayings, have you seen bitterness or anger or resentment? 
We talked about how the first thing that is, is he forgives those people who are crucifying him, those people who called for his crucifixion, those people who drove the nails into him. He says, forgive them. That's his thing. We, we talked about how he actually conversed with the thieves on the cross, right? These two, two, two thieves. He doesn't go, yeah, you dirty criminals, you deserve to die. I don't, I'm in it. He doesn't do any of that. He turns to the one and he says, you'll be with me in paradise today. He welcomes that one into paradise. He speaks to his mother and to his friends who were standing there, caring for them and preparing for them. He doesn't turn to his friend and say, John, what the heck? John, get me off here, dude. Come on. Right? He says, this is your new mom. And mom, this is your new son. Right? Not once does it say that Jesus swore at those people around him and then he cursed those people around him or he placed blame on everyone else. He called everyone a bunch of doofuses or any of that. It doesn't say he did that. He doesn't have bitterness or anger about the situation. And why? Why doesn't he get bitter or angry? And honestly, I believe this ties back to the last point. Is it because he knew this was part of God's plan? And because he knew this was part of God's plan, he humbly accepted and trusted that this was part of God's plan. There's nothing to get bitter and angry about. This was all part of God's plan. I've seen a lot of bitterness and anger this week, especially this weekend. As I was writing the sermon, it was Thursday, and I was writing the sermon and also preparing to get ready to watch Doug Ford's announcement on the lockdown. And all over social media all morning, and actually since then, all I've seen is bitterness and anger and frustration. I have seen fellow pastors and fellow Christians slamming the government, slamming anyone who disagrees with them, slamming anyone who would be okay with this, just out, outward frustration and anger and bitterness about the whole situation. And we might not love the fact that we are locked down again. It is hard, of course. But if we accept that God is in control, then we can accept too that this is part of his plan, that God can work even through this. God does work even through this. All year long, we have been working through restrictions as a church, and it's been hard, but all year long, God has been so faithful. We have seen so much fruit. There are churches that are struggling so hard right now financially, and God has blessed our church financially. There are churches who are on the brink of closure because they couldn't update themselves with technology, but God blessed us with grants and the ability to get some technology and get our church services online. There are people tuning into our church service, not just from Cambridge, not just from Waterloo, not just from Ontario, but all over the country and even outside the country. There are people all over the world that are able to hear this message today. God has been so faithful in all of this. So all of this too can work together for God's plan. We can say this sucks and it does suck. There's no denying that this is hard and this is tough, but we can say at the same time as we say this sucks, we can have another but. Say, but I trust you, God. I trust you, God. And I trust that even in this situation, you are still working. You are still working all things together. This is still working towards your plan and your purposes in the world. And I am happy to be part of that. We can say that and not hold on to this bitterness and this anger. We can let go of the bitterness and the anger about the situation. We should try that. You should try that this week. We've talked about bitterness and anger before and letting bitterness and anger build up inside of you, it literally poisons you from the inside out. Don't do that to yourself. Don't poison yourself from the inside out by holding on to this bitterness and this anger. Let it go. Jesus didn't show bitterness and anger after he was beaten for hours. He was tortured and whipped for hours. A crown of thorns was jammed onto his head. He was unjustly tried and mocked and ridiculed, and then they made him carry his cross up the hill where they nailed him to it and hung him by it. 
and he died a brutal death on a cross. And in that situation, Jesus didn't show bitterness or anger. He wouldn't get angry at other people in that situation. So if Jesus wasn't bitter and angry in that situation, I don't think we need to be either. I don't think we should be either. Now it's point number four. And point number four is probably one of my favorite things about this whole section. Jesus died in complete control of the situation. Now there is an article in the Journal of American Medical Association in 1986 where they studied the physical death of crucifixion and specifically Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. They studied it from an objective medical standpoint. They basically looked at all the literature they could find historically through Roman literature, Greek literature, Aramaic literature. They looked at everything they could find about crucifixion, all the historical research they could find. And when this, in this paper, they talked about how brutal flogging was, where it says Jesus was flogged, right? And they talked about how brutal it was, how the instruments that they used to flog people would cut right through skin, right through muscle, and even cut into the very bones of the people that were being flogged. They talked about the physical and mental abuse that a victim would feel during scourging, which is another torture Jesus went through. They talk about the various types of crucifixions, because there was a couple different types of crucifixions that the Romans would do, and how the way that the cross is actually designed, the way they designed it would have made it very hard to breathe. That's why at times after, if someone had been hanging on a cross for so long, the soldiers would go back and break the person's legs. Because what would happen is that you would have to push up on your legs to take a breath. And then you would sink back down. And when you sink back down, it becomes very hard to draw a breath. And he talked about how hard that would be to push your body up and take a breath and then lean back in. He talked about how awful and painful a death crucifixion was and how it was not a quick one. How many times it could take days for people to die on a cross. But then they talk about Jesus. And they said that from what they understand, Jesus died anywhere from three to six hours total on that cross. And they said, what could have caused such an early death? It says the soldiers had to check to make sure that Jesus was dead because it's an un unusual thing for someone to die so quickly or so early on the cross. So what caused his death then? Well, they, they, they conjectured a few things, the, the scientists and the, and the uh, people looking at this. They said things well, like perhaps he suffered a heart attack. Uh, you know, perhaps he had uh, been poisoned in, in some of the, the, the wine, perhaps one of these other things. But our verse actually answers it. It says, he gave up his spirit. And then he breathed his last breath. And John 10 actually corroborates that. John 10, earlier on in John, it talks about this. Jesus says, I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus was completely in control of his own death. He gave up his own spirit. No one took it from him. No one took that from him. And we see this a lot in Jesus' life. He is in complete control of his life. When the crowd in his hometown, they try to seize him at the beginning of the Gospels, Luke, Luke 4. It says the, the, the crowd didn't like what he was saying. And so they seized him and they took him out to the edge and they were going to throw him off this cliff. And Luke 4.30 says he walked right through the crowd and on his way. He just walked right through them and on his way. In the garden, later on, right, Jesus is arrested. He could have fought back in the garden of Gethsemane. One of my things was like, Jesus, why didn't, why didn't you fight back, right? And I'm sure the disciples asked the same thing. Jesus, why didn't you fight back here, right? He's with a couple of his buddies in this garden, and they come to get him at night. And he could have fought back because as we, as we know, one of them had a sword, right? It says one of them struck the high priest's servant and cuts his ear off. So they had a weapon, at least. They could have fought back, or, or the, the disciples could have been, Jesus could have ran, right? He could have done that, but no. He willingly goes with them. He offers himself up to the authorities. 
And again, in his trials, right, with Pilate, Pilate just says, show me a sign, show me a miracle, show me something, right? All he had to do was simply perform any miracle, any sign, Pilate would have let him go. But Jesus remains in control, and he willingly offers himself up. Jesus remains in control right up to the very end of his life. No one took his life from him. He offered it willingly. And that's powerful, because willingly offering something is a gesture of love. Being forced to do it is just not so much. And, and uh, an easy example for me is, if you came up to me on the street and you said, Luke, I'm really short my rent. I don't know how I'm going to make rent this week. I just, I, I don't think I'll get there this month. I don't have the money. And I just, I, I handed you $1,000. I said, here, you know, I want you to have this. I want you to take this and I want you to go pay your rent. That's a gesture of love. I, I give you that willingly, I offer that money to you willingly to help you because I love you. The opposite example is if you come up to me and, and you're short your month's rent and you and three of your buddies, you beat me up and you rob me and you take that $1,000 so that you can pay your rent. Well, I didn't do it because I loved you. I did it because you forced me to do it. You made me do it. That wasn't a gesture of love, but willingly offering you the $1,000. That was a gesture of love. Willingly paying your rent for you, willingly paying your debt for you was a gesture of love. Being forced to pay your debt for you, not so much a gesture of love. And that's key because no one forced Jesus to die for you. He did it because he loves you. He is in control and he willingly offered his life up for you. He was in control right to the very end. He gave his life for you. No one forcefully took it from him. And finally, our fifth point, our last point. He died knowing where he was going. This is the words of reunion. This is the reunion. Jesus says it so clearly. He says, Father, into your hands. Father into your hands. See, Jesus knows where he is going. He is going back to the Father. He is giving his life back into the Father's hands. If you notice something, uh, this is Jesus' intimate word he uses again. He uses the word Father here. It's that intimate relationship that has existed for all eternity. We noted this when we say at the beginning of our seven sayings that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, right? That's that intimate word, Father, forgive them. But then in the middle of the cross experience, we Jesus, we, we see just say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? And we talked about that, that that's not how Jesus addresses God. Jesus always addressed him as Father. In the middle of that cross experience, when he's abandoned and when he's forsaken by God on the cross, he says, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, right? He says that. But here we are at the very end, his last breath, and he says, Father, Father. The intimacy has been restored. He knows where he is headed. He is to be reunited with his father. And then we have those words, into your hands. And there is just something wonderfully beautiful about this expression of Jesus longing for his father to reach out and to embrace him, to take him into his hands, to grab him in a hug and hold him so tightly. There's something wonderfully beautiful about that. There's just something powerful about being held in your father's hands. There's just this, this sense of safety that comes from being held in the hands of your father. I remember one time, uh, my older brother and my dad and I, we went to a concert. It was in Toronto. It was called SARS Stock. It was a benefit concert for SARS in 2003. Uh, ACDC was there. Rush was there. The Rolling Stones. Even Justin Timberlake was there. Everyone was there. It was hugely popular. It was a big deal. And it was a massive event. We had to line up for hours to get in. We had to take the subway because you couldn't get cars anywhere near the event. There was over 500,000 people attending that concert. And I was only 14. And in that crowd of 500,000 people, I got lost. I couldn't find anyone. I couldn't find my dad and I couldn't find my brother. 
I ended up getting stuck and finding a police officer and kind of half through tears I said I'm lost and I can't find my family and he took me to the lost kids zone and there was a bunch of lost kids in there and they filled out a little bit of paperwork about me and everything and my dad's name and they, they took my address and all that and I was probably only there for about a half an hour but I was terrified I was scared the whole time. I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to find my dad and my brother again. I'm going to be stuck in Toronto. I'm going to have to go to the police station. They're going to have to put my face on the news. I'm going to be all by myself. And I was terrified. But then, into the door walks my dad. Right through that front door of the Lost Kids Zone walked my dad. And it was like everything was going to be okay. All of a sudden, this sense of relief and safety washed over me. It didn't matter that there was 500,000 people out in that crowd. The one person who made me feel so safe was right there beside me now. I was safe because my dad was there. And I remember my dad, he took me in his hand and we walked right through the crowds. We walked all the way back to where my older brother had been waiting for us. And I just felt this sense of safety. And then we go back to Jesus here. For over a day, Jesus had been in the hands of awful, hateful people. His, those hands that he was in, the people were beating him and torturing him. He was beaten and abused at the hands of others. But now, Jesus returns to his Father's hands. And those hands are loving hands. Those hands are the hands of safety and compassion, comfort and grace, mercy and love. Those hands were waiting, waiting for Jesus. Those hands are stretched out towards Jesus, waiting to hold him. And those hands are stretched out towards you, too waiting to wrap you up in their embrace. See, Jesus died No, he was going back to his Father's hands. And you can have that confidence too if you know Jesus and you let him hold you in the warmth of his Father's embrace. This is the most important event in the Christian year, the Easter season. It's the one that we kind of build the Christian year around. This is the most impactful year or event, sorry, of the Christian year. We have his death, we have his resurrection, and sometimes it's easy to get lost in the, the distractions of life over this weekend. It's easy to get lost up, especially if it's a normal weekend or a weekend like this. It's easy to get lost up in the dinners and the Easter eggs and all the fun festivities of this. And this year it's going to be, it could be easy to get lost by focusing on all the things that we're going to lose with this lockdown restrictions, all the things we can't do, all the things that we feel are taken away from us. And we could focus on those things. Or we could focus on the thing that we're supposed to focus on this weekend. We need to focus on that thing. If we focus on all those things that we're losing or all those things that we're missing, we're going to be missing out on the most important thing, which is Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is an unforgettable event. This is the most sacrificial act of love. Max Licata writes this in his book, uh, No Wonder They Call Him Savior. He writes uh, this, this, this almost poem where he paints a picture about what Jesus' death would have looked like if it was seen from heaven, or what Jesus' death simply would have looked like. So I'm going to leave you with that today. Max Licata writes, Were it a war, this would be the aftermath. Were it a symphony, this would be the second between the final note and the first applause. Were it a journey, this would be the sight of home. Were it a storm, this would be the sun piercing through the clouds. But it wasn't. It was a Messiah. And this was a sigh 
of joy. Father, the voice is hoarse. The voice that called forth the dead, the voice that taught the willing, the voice that screamed at God now says, Father, Father. The two are one again. The abandoned is now found. The schism is now bridged. Father, he smiles weakly. It's over. Satan's vultures have been scattered. Hell's demons have been jailed. Death has been damned. The sun is out. The sun is out. It's over. An angel sighs. A star wipes away a tear. Take me home. Yes, take him home. Take this prince to his king. Take this son to his father. Take this pilgrim to his home. He deserves a rest. Take me home. Come, 10,000 angels, come and take this wounded troubadour to the cradle of his father's arms. Farewell, manger's infant. Bless you, holy ambassador. Go home, death slayer. Rest well, sweet soldier. The battle is over. The battle is over. Death is defeated. The enemy has lost. Christ has risen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. He is risen today.